Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here again with the incredible meditation teacher and author, Lodro Rinsler. Hello, Lodro, and welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Today, we're going to talk about finding peace in anxious times. But before we get into that, let's learn about our illustrious guest. For those that don't know, Lodro Rinsler is the author of seven meditation books, including The Buddha Walks Into a Bar and Love Hurts, Buddhist Advice for the Heartbroken, and he is the co-founder of Mindful Meditation Studios in New York City. Lodro has taught meditation for 19 years in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and travels frequently for his books, having spoken across the world at conferences, universities, and businesses as diverse as Google, Harvard University, and the White House. Lodra was on the show last year and we talked all about self-love. And today he's back and we're here to talk about his newest book, Take Back Your Mind, Buddhist Advice for Anxious Times. Welcome to the show again, Lodro. How are you today? Are you feeling any anxiety about this interview? <laughs> no anxiety. I'm actually really happy to be here with you. But I do think that's a great topic. And I think it's a topic that people don't often get a chance to talk about. So I imagine if someone's tuning in, they might even be like, oh, thank God. You know, someone's actually going to talk about how I can deal with this. So I'm excited for the conversation, I'll say. Yeah, it's true. I do think the pandemic has really brought a lot of uncertainty to our lives. And with the uncertainty, people don't know what the future is. And it's really easy to get anxious about the future. And before we talk about anxiety and the times that we're in, I want to go back to that first word, Buddhist advice. And my first question is kind of like, what makes advice particularly Buddhist? And what does Buddhism mean to you? And the reason I ask is I think a lot of folks think of Buddhism as one of the big religions in the world, along with Christianity and Islam with a few billion followers each. We have Buddhism as well. And you go to to the church, you see a big image of Christ on the cross. And then you go to a temple and you see a meditative, meditative statue of the Buddha. But many like followers of Buddhism say, no, 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 the Buddha is not a god that we worship. He was just a man who presented certain philosophical ideas that we all adhere to. So I know it's kind of a big question, but are we talking about dogmatic beliefs here in a religion or philosophical ideas? And what makes advice particularly Buddhist to you? Yes, it's a great question. Thank you for asking it. I think, you know, the advice and why it would be Buddhist is because it's not like, uh, it's not Lodro advice. It's not like I made any of this stuff up. And, you know, in the new book, Take Back Your Mind, Buddhist Advice for Anxious Times, it's really, it's, this is stuff that has been handed down to me by the teachers that I've studied with. And it was handed down to them from teachers they studied with. And it was handed down to them from teachers they studied with. And it goes all the way back, a little bit of a game of telephone, but still sort of a direct line, 2,600 years to someone who is able to really wake up to the way they are and the way the reality is and and to be a wakeful and open-hearted person. And there have been many other examples of beings who are able to wake up in big ways and to 
deep in their experience of compassion. And this is the advice that they continue to reify and say, yeah, this is how we do it. So it's been passed on to me. And I'm just sort of, in some sense, the mouthpiece for this 2600 year old tradition. In terms of what Buddhism is and what is it, you know, I think you asked, what is it to me, which is Buddhism, I guess there's different ways to define it, but it's a little bit like being like, what is the sun to you? Well, the sun is something that, you know, the sun is the sun. But here, Buddhism is Buddhism. Buddhism is the teachings of the Buddha that happened 2,600 years ago that have been continued to be made applicable to different modern situations up to the present day. But the teachings themselves have not changed. You know, the ways of working with the mind in order to, in our particular example of what we're talking about today, acknowledge some of the ways that we hold ourselves in stress and pain and to let up on that, to let them go and to be more present, to be more open-hearted, to be more compassionate and mindful. That's something that, you know, that's the core of Buddhism, but it's not something other than what the Buddha taught 2,600 years ago. And you're right, like the Buddha is um, a shining example of someone who through meditation was able to wake up in a big way, but it's not like he was a god. It's not like he was a someone that we ought to worship is this sense that he was a human being like you and me. And he was able to see past his veils of confusion and obscurations and stress and anxiety, then so can we. And that's good news. And there have been many people in this tradition that have been able to do that. Yeah, there's a couple of sayings I'm thinking of. And one of them is, if you meet the Buddha on the path, you should kill him. And people usually present this saying to mean like, if you have anyone who tells you, this is the thing you have to believe in, don't trust them. And there's another phrase that I love and I bring into my teachings a lot, which is a hipposico, which is most often translated to see for yourself, which is to say that any spiritual teaching, particularly in the Buddhist lineage, is not something that you just wrote, wrotely are forced to believe in, but it's something you try on and figure out for yourself. And when you do give like Buddhist advice, how do you encourage your students to take it? You know, for example, do you say this is the way things are and if you don't believe it, it's too bad? Or how do you engage a certain level of inquiry and investigation into this advice? Yeah, it's it's a good question. <laughs> and that sense of if you see the Buddha in the road, kill him, it's that sense of the Buddha is not external to you. The reason we look to the Buddha as an example, it's because it was a human that was able to wake up. And it said that was good proof that we have the same essence, the same suchness of the Buddha, meaning that we too have the same ability to wake up. So the Buddha is not external to us. The Buddha is our own wakefulness. We have an example in the same way that we might look to family who has gone through an experience that we're looking to go through. And we say, oh, that's an example of someone who's able to do that. Same thing. But it doesn't mean that we would worship our cousin who, you know, was able to do this. It's <laughs> the fact that we know, oh, we, we might even learn from that person. How did you, you do it? And they can give us advice, but it's, it's up to us to then go out and do the thing. I'm sorry, it's a little bit of a vague example, but same thing with meditation and waking up past our anxiety, that it's it's more interesting that we receive the teachings and we say, okay, how can I mesh them with my experience? As you said, see for myself. If the teachings do not mesh with our experience, then we should discard them. They are not meant to be dogmatic. They are not meant to be, of course, in any tradition, people can hold something very tightly and say, this is the way it is. But often in Buddhism, we see that people consider these things more loosely. Here's an idea for you to try on. And if it does turn out that this is your experience, then you should cherish it. That's the flip side. If it doesn't, then we can discard it. But if it's something that's really helping us toward wakefulness as opposed to helping us toward our confusion, then we really ought to cherish it. 
I love that. And that's one of the things I love about speaking with any Buddhist teacher is what you just said. If the teachings don't match with our experience, then discard them. It's okay. It's about your own verifiable truth. And I kind of want to get a little metaphysical here with you. And okay. this isn't in this wasn't in my list of prepared questions that I had sent you, but when I hear you talk about our own wakefulness, our own suchness. I'm thinking about one of kind of the big tenets of Buddhism, that the ego is an illusion, that who we are is an illusion, what we sometimes call egolessness or anatman. And so I've always kind of wondered when we talk about like I am wanting to wake up or you become enlightened, who is this being, thing, object, ego that is becoming enlightened if who I think I am is actually an illusion? So let's start with the notion of egolessness and emptiness. So this is just the world's shortest nutshell of the world's most complex concept. <laughs> the idea that I as a Lotus am not one solid thing. In fact, it said that even over the course of seven years, every cell in this body dies and is replaced. But I still think of myself as the same body that I carried around seven years ago, even though that's not true. It's an idea, as you said, an illusion. It's a fallacy. Same thing with everything else, that things come together, things fall apart. You know, in the same way that if you've dated uh, someone for a number of years, you look over your shoulder and you say, that's not the same person that I first got together with. They've changed over time. They're just walking conglomeration of wisdom and experience as ever-changing. And yet we might hold our idea of, well, this is who they are. And that would be mistaken. That would also be a fallacy. It'd be an illusion. So it's not just me. It's not just my wife. It's everything. Everything around us is constantly changing, shifting, yet we, for some desire or for comfort, say, no, this is the fixed way things are. And that is how a lot of strife comes about. A sense of these people are bad people. These people are good people. These politicians are always wrong. These politicians are always right. We get very into our fixed ideas and opinions. And emptiness is the idea that we could actually empty ourselves out of our fixed ideas and opinions. And then to get to your question, what are we left with? When we let go of all the stories we tell about ourselves, all the stories we tell about the people around us, all the stories about our life that we cling to so desperately, even though they don't always mesh with reality, we're left with a sense of space. We're left with a sense of openness. And within that, there's a sense of wakefulness. So when we talk about, I mean, we're going real deep into, you know, 11 minutes in around the core of Buddhism, but he said, you know, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. You want to cling to a bunch of concepts about like who you think you are and the way things are supposed to be you're probably going to perpetuate a lot of your own suffering. But if you actually are able to relax some of those, you could then find a way through suffering to a sense of wakefulness. You know, the Sanskrit word would be Tathagata Garbha, Buddha nature, that inherently we already possess this Buddha nature. And when we empty ourselves out of all the stories, we discover that for ourselves. I love that. I'm going to repeat what you said. When we let go of all the stories we tell about ourselves, we are left with a sense of spaciousness, openness, and wakefulness. And that's such a beautiful teaching and such a beautiful insight to discover on one's own through meditation, through learning these teachings. And I also want to return to something you said before that, which is that Everything is moving, everything is changing, everything is impermanent, um, including me, including you. Things appear to be constant. We want things to be constant, but they're not. Everything is shifting. 
And I feel like that is a huge source of anxiety. I feel like that's almost one of the most fundamental basis of our anxiety is that there is no fundamental ground to stand on. You know, I remember I had a friend who got a new car and she was so anxious about getting like the tiniest scratch on it. And that's what happens, right? We we have things we like. We we love our partner. We don't want them to get sick and die. We love our job. We don't want to get fired. We love our new car. We don't want it to get a scratch or a dent. And inevitably, the rug gets pulled out from under our feet. The sandcastle that we're trying to build gets swept away by the ocean. Then the fundamental impermanence is that, of course, we have our own death to be concerned about and anxious about. So... What are we to do about this anxiety that the things that we love and care about are not going to last and going to shift and change right before us? Yeah. And I I hear you. I mean, I think there's a lot of anxiety of like, I want things to look a certain way. And if I can get them that way, then I want them to stay that way. And I'm worried that they won't. And if I can't get them to be that way, I'm going to constantly strive to try and get them that way. And it causes us a lot of pain in both cases. Professor Bob Thurman, who was really one of the earlier scholars in um, the West around Tibetan Buddhism in particular, he in recent years have been has been famously saying Buddhism is realism. And I love that idea. It's just like Buddhism is just saying this is the reality of our situation and the car will get a scratch on it. I think we all know that, like even hearing your example, it's like, oh, of course, at some point the car is going to get a scratch. At some point the car will break down. At some point the job will end or the relationship will end. And maybe it will end short term. It'll be very, uh, you know, short relationship or job or car, or maybe it'll be very long thing. The car lasts you many, many years. The job is something that you hold for the majority until you retire and then you lose it that way. Or the, you know, relationship, you stay together forever or you stay together a week, who knows, but at some point one of you was going to die and that's also a form of impermanence. So if we've ever had a car or a job or a relationship, we know that impermanence is real. Like I'm not saying something that's like, oh my gosh, this philosophy is very intriguing. It's like, this is the reality of our situation. And of course, impermanence isn't always a bad thing. If you hate your job, you get a new job. Is that a bad thing? No, sometimes impermanence is good. If we feel deeply heartbroken from a past relationship, eventually the heartbreak changes, it fades, it heals. And then we feel whole and good again, and we can actually move on and we heal. So like that sense of impermanence can be a very good thing that that state of deep pain was impermanent. So the secret, so to speak, here is to be with our experience as it is to the best of our ability, to be with reality as it is, which also means knowing things are impermanent. And instead of allowing impermanence and like, I don't know how long this is going to go for to freak us out, contemplating it can actually lead to a sense of deep appreciation for things as they are. So there's an old saying in Buddhism that the time of death is uncertain. We know this. We know that we could live a very long life or we could die tomorrow uh, and, you know, get hit by a bus or some such thing. We don't know the time of death. And the reason that we might contemplate this in traditional Buddhism is not to scare us, not to freak us out um, like a haunted house or something, but to make us appreciate things in the time that we have. So if I don't know how much time I have, don't I want to apply myself to being as wakeful, as compassionate, as open with loving to the people around me as possible, as opposed to just staring at my phone? right? Like it's just, it motivates us to move to the things that we want to take advantage of in this lifetime, as opposed to taking our life for granted. So that's, that's a little bit of the idea of like, well, if everything's impermanent, could we not get freaked out, but instead say, knowing that reality, knowing that truth, can I appreciate it all the more? Could I actually really just enjoy the car? Can I enjoy the job? Can I enjoy the relationship while it's here, not knowing how long it will be? 
I need that and like a sticker and I can post it everywhere. Be as loving as possible to the people around you instead of staring at your phone. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> it's like daily reminder, daily reminder. <laughs> so I, I love that distinction that impermanence can be a good thing. And that when we're in any negative aspect of our lives is that too is not going to last forever. Even pain that we feel is not going to be forever. And I feel like you're describing a very beautiful way to approach our experience. And you mentioned we want to, first of all, be with our experience as best as we can in the moment. And from there, that almost arises a deep appreciation for the way that things are. And let's uh, take that approach to our subject for today, which is anxiety. When anxiety comes up for a lot of people, the first thing they want to do is get rid of it. They want to fix it. They want to ignore it. They want to sweep it away. And the last thing I think people want to do is feel that anxiety is like a good thing that they should be appreciative for. So when we do feel anxiety, we feel anxious and arising inside of us, how should we treat it? Yeah. So it's interesting because meditation, people are like, okay, this guy's going to just tell me to meditate and then I can get rid of my anxiety. I think meditation has been in recent years equated with a sense of stress reduction, which is not bad, but it's also a bit of a misnomer just in that it sort of sounds like we could somehow get rid of the stressful things in our life if we meditated, if we just focused on the breath and we don't have to pay taxes, we don't have to have like interpersonal issues with our family or whatever. It's like, unfortunately, those things will exist. But I do think that meditation can help us acknowledge the stories that keep us locked in pain around those things and not buy into them so much, giving us some more mental freedom. So when we're talking about, let's maybe I'll even break out stress and anxiety briefly. Stress is a situation that's often a, a short-term thing and it can, a stressful trigger might arise. You get an email from your boss saying, I need you to get this thing you didn't know that was going to be due done by the end of the week. And that is stressful because there's a lot of expectation being put on you and you notice the body start to have a phys- physiological response and that's normal. But I think one of the beautiful things about meditation is that it starts to help us acknowledge that we're there, start to come back into the body, to process it quickly, to move into the next moment, maybe even address the thing in a skillful way. This is different than what we often do, which is to perpetuate anxiety. And anxiety here, the distinction is it's not actually that initial response. It's the stories that we start telling ourselves in response to that. It's the fact that we start saying, oh my gosh, my boss is always like this. And this is just how it's always going to be. And I'm never going to have any time to myself. I'm not going to have any time for relaxation. This is just so typical. Or we start to say, I'm going to get this wrong. And my boss is going to fire me. And this is going to be horrible. I'm going to do a bad job. And everyone's going to laugh at me, whatever our version of these stories may be. And these stories are what actually hold us locked in that state of stress. And that's anxiety. It's that we then hold ourselves further on. The boss didn't say, I need you to hold yourself in a state of pain about this until Friday. The boss said, here's something on your plate. Can you deal with it? But we do that to ourselves. And it's a controversial thing, perhaps to some degree to say, but there is this element of a choice. We are making a choice to hold ourselves in that state of pain and stress, or we can make a different choice and say, I would like to let that go and actually learn to move into the present moment more to be happier. So how do we treat the anxiety? We can notice and we can start to release the stories. There's an old Buddhist analogy of two arrows. And I I love this analogy around anxiety and stress. You're walking through a forest. Out of nowhere, an arrow comes and hits you in the arm. And the thing we probably should do in that case is to pull out the arrow and start to tend to our own healing. And yet what we often do is we say, 
oh my God, why is it always me that gets hit? This is so typical. And it's probably because of that thing I did in the second grade. And this is, you know, totally what I deserve, or this is not at all what I deserve. And everyone's against me or whatever her version is. And that's the second arrow. So arrow number one, part of there's stress and pain that happens as part of life. This is just part of it. We all know that. Arrow number two, the stories that we tell ourselves to keep us locked in that pain, to not tend to the healing, to just perpetuate it. And that's what's known as anxiety. So how should we treat our anxiety? We should let those stories go. And now I'll actually talk about meditation because I do think the most basic form or one of the most basic forms is to just be mindful of the body breathing. That we take an uplifted and relaxed posture. We notice the breath. When we get distracted, we come back to the breath. It's very simple, not always easy, but very simple technique. But the more we do that, the more we start to make that like something that the brain does, something that we are, I don't want to say getting good at, but that we become more fluent in the ability to notice when we drift off and come back. When this pain and suffering as part of life happens, we don't fall into the rabbit hole of stressful thinking of anxiety producing thoughts. We say, oh, I can acknowledge it. I can come back into the present moment because I've been training my mind to do that. And that's why meditation can be so helpful because all we do, I mean, people think that you're just supposed to sit there in peace and meditation, but what we really do is we're there with the breath and then we have a 10 bazillion thoughts that come up. We acknowledge them. We come back. More thoughts come up. We acknowledge them. We come back. We keep going on and on and on in that way. And as a result, the mind starts to learn, oh, I do not need to chase after every thought that comes arise, that arises. I can actually do something other than that. So there's real liberation, real choice, real freedom within all of this. Yeah, I love the process that you're describing. It almost reminds me a little bit of like cognitive behavioral therapy, which is an approach designed to notice how quickly and how often our thoughts feed our emotions. There are many that say it takes an emotion like one to two minutes to pass through our bodies, but it's the continuous rumination of the mind, of the thoughts that actually continue to fuel the emotion, in this case, anxiety that we're feeling. And what you're describing also reminds me of a quote, I think it's by Jack Kornfield, along the lines of that meditation does not free us from problems, but it does free us from complicating them, from adding, as you mentioned, yeah, the second arrow. And I'm thinking about this really beautiful process of sitting in meditation and the conflict that I'm imagining in my head that I'll ask you about right now is when anxiety is too much and almost when it becomes like a clinical diagnosis, like generalized anxiety disorder that a therapist might give you. So it's kind of a two part question along the lines of what if we can't even sit for a minute because our mind is racing And do you feel like there's either a limit to what meditation is able to achieve, in which case somebody should talk to a professional or even like hop on the crisis hotline, for example, we talk about like why is discrimination in in meditation? And I do know meditation can really help a lot of the sort of mental illnesses that we experience, but so can, you know, medication and so can professionals. So Where do you see meditation's role in managing anxiety in the greater realm of clinicians and medications and different approaches like that? Yeah, I I think it can be a really good hand-in-hand experience. And I I share this from the perspective, and I'm happy to, to be open about this, that I myself have worked with a therapist for eight years, nine years at this point. And um, I just think that is a healthy outlet. 
in terms of working with my own mind and continuing to look at some of the obscurations that keep me from being wakeful and keep from being present and being as loving as I would like. You know, I think that's a really helpful place for me. And I think for people who might have anxiety disorders or other situations that might then benefit from medication and they work with a trained professional who advises that, that's a wonderful thing to do. The only thing I want to push back on is the people that are like, I can't meditate in addition. And this is where I might get into a little bit of trouble, but I, I was talking with a meditation student earlier and, uh, you know, she's sort of was like, so what am I supposed to do in X, Y case? And am I really just supposed to come back and to breathe and to come into my body and then come into the present moment and let the story go? Like, is that the whole thing? And I was like, what do you think? And she said, okay, yes, I know. I know I'm supposed to. <laughs> and, and she said, you know, I advise people in my own line of work where they want to lose weight. And I say, well, you should exercise and keep a good diet. And they said, okay, I get that. But like, can't I do something else? And I have to keep saying, no, you should exercise and keep <laughs> a good diet, right? So it, it is a little bit like that where I think people are like, well, can't I just do something? Meditation's uncomfortable. I, did, I tried it once. I sat there with the breath and I had too many thoughts. So I'm, I can't meditate. And I think it's very much like in our culture right now where we want to Amazon Prime enlightenment. We want to like <laughs> get it quick and get it done. And if we can't get it quick and get it done in a timely manner, then it's not our worth our time and it's not working for us and we should try something else. Where I think, you know, for generations upon generations before, the idea has always been, if you want to actually develop a skill set, then you need to really spend time with it. And I think if people do, you know, it used to be like, come for an hour and a half sit, come for a half hour sit. These days it's, you know, I find myself for the last several years saying, well, start at 10 minutes. But then when we get into the realm of like, I can't do it for a minute. It's like, well, I, I'm going to have to push back. <laughs> like anyone can actually just learn to be in the body for a minute and then to build the capacity from there. And even if that's three, seven deep breaths in through the nose, out through the mouth, calming the nervous system, I think that people can do it. And as I said, you know, we built, we build our capacity and we build our, our, the more that we do this stuff consistently, the easier it becomes, the more fluent it is. We have to stop thinking about meditation as a, um, like massage. Like I could go to a massage and say, okay, in a half hour, I should walk out and feel good about my body and feel relaxed. Here we're, it's more like learning a new language where at first you walk in a half hour later, you walk out and you say, I'm more confused than I was to begin with. <laughs> like how, how am I even supposed to like make those sounds or it, you know, it's, I don't understand it. It's just, it's, it's Greek to me quite literally. And yet if we keep going and we keep doing the thing and we spend, let's pretend 10 minutes a day learning that language and studying our vocab and learning the pronunciation, a couple of weeks, a couple of months pass, we look over our shoulder and we say, oh, there's actually a sense of fluency here. There's, I'm able to actually have an intro conversation. I'm able, and then over years we say, I'm very fluent in the language and it feels very good that we learn that skill set. Same thing of working with anxiety. At first, it's uncomfortable to be in the body breathing. We want to problem solve with our brain. That's what the, it's like this device that's been trained to only solve our problems, to fix everything, to play out every scenario. And we're doing the polar opposite of that. And here we're saying, okay, well, what if I didn't do that? What if I actually was able to be present? And I tried that out for a little bit. So we keep trying that out. We keep trying that out and gradually just becomes, I don't want to say easier per se, but you know, a little bit more relaxed. We're able to relax with the body breathing. We're able to acknowledge thoughts more quickly and not necessarily get pulled away by them so much. And we start to see that influence the rest of our life. We actually just start to get to the point of feeling greater ease overall in working with the mind and not letting anxiety uh, dominate our experience. So I do think that there's that sense of like, we got to start somewhere and wherever that is for different people, it's great. I often recommend working with live humans who are trained meditation instructors to actually 
get going so you feel like you have real support because it is like learning a new language. It's harder to do if you're just doing it on an app or something like that, but not impossible, but it's, you know, you don't always hear that you're getting the mispronunciation wrong. And the same thing with meditation. You don't always notice that you're <laughs> maybe twisting the technique in a way that's not helping you. So I do think that it's helpful to have um, life people that we study with and that ultimately if we think about it as sort of a long-term endeavor, then we really can train the mind to not be held in anxiety in the way that it currently exists. It sounds impossible for many people, but I really do believe that. It just takes a little bit more work than we might normally want to do. I very much appreciate your kind of very plain language and understandable language that you use to describe these big concepts. And you do it both in your books. It's very clear. And then just talking to you, I appreciate, you know, you're saying like, oh, we we all want to Amazon Prime our enlightenment. We want the quick fix and we want the quick pill. But of course, our growth happens at the edge of our comfort zone and meditation is going to be a little uncomfortable. And that's the point. Being able to sit with those challenging emotions allows us to grow from them. Yeah. You mentioned like these anxious times that we are living in. And I know much of the book was written during this pandemic and during COVID. But when I was reading the book and thinking about the title, I was like, aren't we always in anxious times? Because like, isn't it just kind of like one crisis after another? Like, yeah, after COVID gets done, then we have to deal with the climate crisis. And, you know, police are still being free to kill people of color in the streets. And there's so much going on in the world. And the media absolutely like capitalizes on like extreme events and they want you to get your eyes glued to the screen and they want to like think about, okay, what's happening in the world that's going to produce the most anxiety in people and the keep us watching this show. So I'm just really curious, like what is anxious times to you? And since you just mentioned that through practice and through work, we don't have to live in anxiety. What does the light at the end of the tunnel look like? I'm sure you're, you're not saying like, you'll never feel anxiety again for the rest of your life. What does the result of developing the skills to deal with anxiety look like? Sure. So I think for most people, if we were to do some sort of bar chart, it'd be like 90% of my mental energy goes into future anxiety producing thoughts and 10% <laughs> stays present. And maybe people are like, nope, 95 and five, whatever your version of it may be. Maybe the anxiety producing thoughts are about the past. Who knows? But the point being that the more we meditate, the more it just sort of slowly inverts. And all of a sudden it's 85% of the time spent locked in anxiety and stress. And then, you know, 15% of the time we're actually more present. And then we're 25% more present. And we're, you know, we continue to let our mental energy start to come into embracing, enjoying our life, as opposed to spending so much time on the anxiety producing stories. But one of the things you pointed to is absolutely correct that there's this element of um, we can't evade stressful situations. There are stressful situations that happen in life, particularly on that societal level, that there are deep inequalities in, happening in our society, that there are ways that people are treated incredibly poorly, that there are people being shot with school shootings and then police officers shooting people of color. There's all sorts of things that frankly, like we have to address. And we, we are mercifully, I would say now waking up to in ways that we haven't in the past. And one could even say that's a good thing that we're waking up to, that we're not just taking these things for granted. We're saying we want them to change. But the flip side of that is we when I say, oh, we are living in anxious times, you're right. It's not like these things that genocide is new, that climate 
crisis is new, any of these things, it's the fact that we're more interconnected than we have been in previous generations. So that if, um, you know, 50 years ago, I were to, uh, there were to be a tsunami somewhere overseas, I would read about it in the paper the next day. And in today's world, if it happens within moments, I can donate to some Facebook page where, you know, people are going to be receiving relief. It's good and bad. It's like, it's in my face more, but then maybe there's more of a feeling like maybe I can do something to help. So we live in a time with this like deep interconnection and absolute speed that the news is in our face 24 hours that I could, you know, wake up at 3 a.m. and there's some breaking news somewhere that I could either allow myself to devolve into stress and anxiety around, or I can let soften my heart. And I think the thing with many of us is that we don't actually know how to do the latter, I'll say. It's like we, our initial response is always like, oh my gosh, I find this triggering and I want to get away from it. And that probably means that our capacity is not large enough to be able to soften to the point of compassion and open-heartedness. And we see this a lot. We see a lot of people getting to the point of um, polarizing, getting like allowing the stories of our times to polarize them, to say these people are just categorically wrong and have been radicalized in some way, or they're just raised wrong or any number of things. And these people that I agree with are absolutely right. And there's no softening that's happening around that. So I think that, you know, the more we do these practices and, you know, yes, there's mindfulness meditation in this book, Take Back Your Mind, but there's also all sorts of other practices and on the spot techniques to work with the mind so that we can stop getting so attached to our fixed concepts about what we think is right and wrong and who we should be and who we aren't and start to soften and say, you know, how do I build that capacity so that when there is big societal news happening, the first response isn't, how is this going to negatively affect me? It's how can I be of service? And that's a very big radical transformation, but it it's possible with the practice. And I think it is that part where we start to spend not 90%, but not 85%, then down to 80%, of our mental energy on me, 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 and the stories I tell myself that keep me locked in anxiety so that the capacity for that sense of presence and open-heartedness grows. But that's the step. We got we to gotta talk ourselves back from all the stories that we perpetuate in our own mind. Yeah, I love that distinction. And I connected it earlier when you were talking about, okay, rather than being anxious 95% of our day, we slowly transition where it just becomes like a small part of our experience and we're able to notice it and hold it but be able to respond from a place of compassion. And I was thinking about how much, yeah, we want to take that same approach to the news and our consumption of news and social media in a negative way is that we don't want to be scrolling through our feeds for hours on end, like, oh my gosh, like there's so many things going on. We want to be like, okay, check the news. Okay, this is what happened. Is there anything I can do about it? No. Or yes. And then you do something about it, but from a place of compassion rather than like anger and reactivity. And you also mentioned that, yeah, there are very important issues we need to address in our society. And it's really amazing when we can do it from a place of presence and compassion rather than unconscious reactivity. And you even have a whole chapter on your book on building a more compassionate society. And so too, when I see injustice and anger and anxiety in the world, I so deeply wish that it had more compassion, that we had a world that was built more on love and compassion than money or white supremacist patriarchal structures, for example. And I'm curious, how do we go about building a world more based on compassion rather than disconnection and division? 
Yeah. Thank you for that question. It's a, a really great one. The maybe empowering is the word thing here is that it starts with us and it starts with us also looking at our own, I'll use the term obscurations, which is a very Buddhist term, but it's essentially veils of confusion that we hold over our eyes. So if I'm really attached to my ideas of things and that's going to obscure my vision, I need to actually be able to do the practices long enough to lift that and see reality as it is, not as I always think it to be. And the more I do that work, the more I am undoing my own bias. So there is a lot that needs to be done by each of us in terms of softening and uh, relinquishing some of the stories that we hold. And it might very well be things that we would call unconscious bias towards certain people, towards certain groups. All of these sorts of things are really important, which is why I often say, you know, in addition to all the other work I do, I also lead mindfulness teacher trainings. And in addition to learning the technique and learning where all these things come from in terms of the roots of Buddhism, it's like at some point we also need to really do diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings where we are looking at our own lens through which we are viewing the world and saying, oh, there are obscurations that I hold that separate me from others. And that's how, if we actually start to do that work, and you know, for me, a lot of it looks like anti-racism work, then we start to say, okay, I understand how I may unknowingly be causing harm. And the less we cause harm, the more room there is for us to be present and open and compassionate to others. The more we understand the ways that we cause harm to ourselves, the more we also see the ways that people are experiencing suffering in the world around us. So for example, if I am someone who's prone to anger and I know how painful that can be, how polarizing, how paralyzing even it can be for me to be stuck in anger, then when I see it in someone else, a politician, a police officer, a friend, my heart then goes to a point of empathy and openness because I say, oh, I know how painful it can be when I'm locked in that state. They must be experiencing that pain too, which is very different than me saying, how dare they, they are wrong. So I was talking earlier about softening some of the ways, that, the stories that we tell ourselves. This is it. It's, it has a deep impact in terms of how we start to treat one another. So the more we relinquish the stories that keep us locked in anxiety and stress, the more capacity we have for genuine connection with those around us. So we actually start to work with ourselves. And then when we say society, society feels very big, but we have to realize that there's societies that we always take part in. Society isn't some big thing out there. It's something that we actually are always a part of. There's our work society. There's the people that we work with and they actually have very particular ways of showing up and particular rules. And that looks very different than our family society because we show up for them in a very different way and was acceptable and not acceptable to wear and to say, and that group is very different than the other society. There's our book club society or our gym society or our subway society that we get on a subway in the morning to commute to work. That is for a short period of time, a group that has particular standards that they've agreed to and values that they hold and so on and so forth, even if it's unspoken. So we're constantly participating in society. How are we showing up for any of those societies? Are we showing up lost in seeing the world through a veil of our own bias, our own obscurations, our own confusion? Are we actually lifting that to the extent that we are able to at this time to see the situation very clearly and then have deeper compassion for those around us because we've been working on our shit? I'm a firm believer that alongside a lot of the Buddhist teachings, some of the DEI work and some of the work around patriarchy and all of these things that are really mercifully starting to come up so that we can actually start to look at our the ways that we perpetuate systems that are no longer working, that those two go hand in hand. The Buddhist teachings and those systems 
or the dismantling of the systems that are holding us in pain really go hand in hand to the extent that we can actually start to learn to be with each other as we are, be open-hearted with each other. And it starts with these tiny communities, like our family, like our workplace, like our gym. And that has a ripple effect. If we show up from a place of um, lacking bias and confusion in any of those situations, we're inviting other people to join us in that space. If they're joining us in that space, that can have a ripple effect on their families, on their workplace, and so on and so forth. That's such a beautiful sentiment. And earlier you were saying how it's important to start exactly where we are to come to the present moment. And when when we think about that on a societal level, it's like starting with us, starting with the circles that we're in, with the communities that we're in, and making sure that we're showing up in the right way and being as inclusive and accepting and compassionate as possible. So thank you so much, Lodra, for coming back on the show. You're our first actual repeat guest. And as you know, I, I always send my guests the questions ahead of time, you know, not so that they can plan their answers, but I just really think that the unconscious mind like will kind of mull it over. And as you're like driving, like, hmm, how would I answer that question? So there's the question I end every show with, and now I get the chance to ask it to you again. And so many months ago, I asked you what you wish everyone knew about love. And you responded along the lines of that love is not something that we get. It's something that we are. So I thought I'd see, you know, have you thought about this question? And now what is your feeling on what do you wish everyone knew about love? Yeah, it's funny. it would have been fun to see if my answer meshed the old answer without knowing it. But yes, I'm going to agree. because I, I don't think anything radical has changed here. I do, I do wish that everyone knew that love is something that they possess on their own. And maybe I'll say it in the context of our conversation here today that the less we cling to the stories that keep us locked in the past and the future, the more we are present, the more we feel that sense of love within us. We feel a sense of wholeness, completeness, okayness as is, and that's our natural state. And love arises out of that natural state, that we actually have a sense of, um, it's very human to love and to be loved. And that love is naturally generative, it's boundless, and it's already within us. I love that. Love is our natural state. And the more present we are, the more love naturally arises. So wonderful. So thanks again, Lodra, for coming back on the show. Your new book, Take Back Your Mind, Buddhist Advice for Anxious Times, I highly recommend everyone check out. And our listeners kind of already know where to find you. So do you have any upcoming offerings or things you want people to know about? Yeah. I mean, right now, and starting in uh, late April, I'll be offering a free course based on this book. And we already have about 500 people signed up, which is great. And it is Take Back Your Mind, Buddhist, Buddhist Teachings on Anxious Times. So very similar to the book title. And it's me going through five different meditation techniques, five different video teachings that are just offered for free to anyone who actually would like to go deeper on this topic of how to take back the mind from anxiety. Cool. That sounds like so much fun. And you're just building a really amazing community. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you again for, for having me back. And thank you for coming on and sharing us all this wisdom and so many things I could pick out. And we hope, thank you listeners for listening to the show. We hope you remember that our task is to be with our experience as best as we can. And from that place, we feel a deep appreciation for things as they are. We want to be as loving as possible to the people around us instead of staring at our phone. And love is our natural state. The more present we are, the more naturally it arises. 
If you want to learn more about the show, you can head to theheartcenter.com and learn more about me at zachbeach.com. Thanks again, Lodro. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to zachbeach.com or theheartcenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 